Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, a leader lost. When the war began, the first person who spoke to us from Gaza was a doctor living in the capital with his young children. Tonight, a friend tells us about his death and his legacy. A wolf in designer clothing. Former fashion mogul Peter Nygaard is found guilty of sexual assault. And the trauma therapist, who's been working with dozens of his alleged victims, welcomes the end of his reign of terror. Descending on dissenting, an Israeli poet living in Berlin tells us Germany is restricting pro-Palestinian protests to make Jews feel safer, but the crackdown is having the opposite effect on him. No false notes. He recorded the Trinity session and revitalized the basement tapes, remembering the legendary Canadian producer Peter J. Moore with Michael Timmons of the Cowboy Junkies. I on the bail. After years in prison, a critic of Rodrigo Duterte's violent, deadly war on drugs in the Philippines is granted bail. We'll revisit her appearance on this program just before she was charged. And lights, camera, and action. The UK's fresh-faced new foreign secretary is actually former Prime Minister David Cameron, a man whose surprise second act is prompting a lot of double takes. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that doesn't know if that government is eco-friendly, but it's certainly echo-friendly. There are numbers and there are names. Since the war in the Middle East began, thousands of people have died. You've heard about some of those people, Israeli and Palestinian, on this show. On the weekend came news of another death. Dr. Hamam Alo worked at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. He lived nearby with his family. He was reportedly killed in an Israeli airstrike. Dr. Alo was one of the first voices we heard on As It Happens after the war started. He spoke to Neil as the bombing in the siege of Gaza began. Here's part of what he told us. It's terrible. With the kids, we try to keep them occupied, to play, to write, to draw, but we do not always succeed because they keep hearing bombings from outside home every day. How old are your children? Um, They are five, four, and six months old. What are you telling them? We tell them there are problems between us and another country. We are trying to solve it. And at times you may hear some bombings, but be sure we love you, we'll stay around you, and it's going to be fine. Dr. Hamam Alo speaking to Neil on October 9th. Dr. Ben Thompson is a Canadian doctor who has worked in Gaza. He was a friend of Dr. Alo. We reached him in Toronto. Dr. Thompson, I'm very sorry for your loss. We just heard your friend's voice there. What goes through your mind as you listen to him speak there? You know, I've been very lucky. I've known Dr. Hammam for years. And like all of his colleagues in Gaza, I was shocked 
when I learned that he was killed by an Israeli airstrike with his father, father-in-law, brother-in-law, his wife and three children, um, as far as I know, have survived. But what you heard in that interview is what all of us knew, Dr. Hamam. We knew he was a wonderful father. He was a committed physician. I spoke to him after this interview and there was bombing going on in his neighborhood while that interview was taking place. And in fact, during that interview, the windows of his house and the doors blew off of his house. And he had to pause that interview to clean up his house, to check on his family, to make sure everyone was safe, and then to come back and complete the interview. And the very next day, he went to work. That's how committed he was. So I hear that interview, and it it saddens me to know that someone has been killed decades before his time, that his three children will grow up without a caring and loving father, and that the healthcare system in Gaza, which was so fortunate to have him, is now without him. That healthcare situation, I mean, you, you've been on the ground at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. You know the reports that we're getting about just how dire it is right now. The, the hospital's barely functioning. There's fighting in most of the streets nearby. Have you been able to reach anyone from, from the doctor's family? Do you have any sense of how they're doing today? I've been trying to reach his wife. I haven't been able to. I've been able to reach a couple of his colleagues and one of his neighbors who did confirm with me the terrible news and confirmed that, in fact, his wife and children did survive. Um, you mentioned the situation in the hospital, and I think it's really important. You know, Dr. Hamam was killed, but if Dr. Hamam was being interviewed now, he wouldn't want the focus on him. He was a man who was incredibly optimistic. In fact, I would say he was optimistic to a fault. And he was living with hospitals being bombed by Israel. He was living that. He was seeing it with his own eyes. And he was having friends killed, family members killed, working in a hospital with no electricity, water or food. And he was convinced, as the optimist that he was, that the more he spoke about what he was experiencing, the more the world would intervene and the more that people of Gaza would stop suffering. I, I hear you on the one hand talk about the optimism he had, but also the weight of that concern about what's next. And, you know, we reached out to, to him on Friday uh, by text message, and he got back to one of our producers, and, and he seemed down. He, he said the whole world has given up mm-hmm. on us. Does that jibe with what you had seen? Had, had things just start to weigh on him so heavily? You know, it's a very difficult time for him. He he was an optimist. He was full of dreams. Certainly over the last month in my conversations with him, he's had good days and he's had bad days. Right. He's had days where he spoke to me about building education programs for tomorrow's doctors of Gaza. And then other times he would ask me, why is the world not acting? He has experienced the sense that he's calling out and the physicians and, and people of Gaza are literally screaming for support. They're screaming for a ceasefire. They're screaming for humanitarian aid. They're screaming for justice and a free Palestine and the world is failing them. And, and I think that did weigh on him, knowing that he wanted people to believe in humanity. <laughs> this is one of those moments of our life where we can't be still. If we honestly believe in the humanity of the Palestinian people, the time to act was weeks ago. And it's even more critical now. 
in the in the midst of this, his now widowed wife and his fatherless children, where will they go? What what happens to them now? You know, that's a very good question. And and I struggled with that exact question myself when I found out that he had been killed. My immediate reaction was I need to contact his wife and his children and I need to bring them to safety in Canada. And then I realized that that's not what he would have wanted. We spoke of the fact that his family members had already been forcibly displaced multiple times. And this is the story of many Palestinian people. He stayed in Gaza because that was his home. He could have gone elsewhere, but he stayed. He wanted to care for his patients and he wanted to be with his family at his home. And I don't doubt for a moment that his wife and children, Dr. Hamam would consider it another form of forcible displacement to be forced Mm -hmm. away from his home. So I don't know what the answer to your question is. I know that... I haven't been able to reach his wife. I'm still going to try. And whatever she needs, I think we need to find a way to provide it. You you guys spent a lot of time together in Gaza talking on the phone. Do you have a a personal moment that you'll remember about him? You know, when I was in his house in September in in Gaza City, (laughs) we were having a traditional Gaza dinner. And his son had just got a skateboard and uh, insisted that we had to go skateboard outside. (laughs) So eventually I got up, I went outside and was playing actually with with both of his older children, trying to get them to learn how to skateboard, realizing I couldn't do it myself. You know, and and Dr. Hamam was sitting there kind of laughing at me because I was clearly demonstrating something I had no business demonstrating. Yeah, his, you know, his kids would get on the skateboard and would fall and literally it didn't matter what his father was doing. His father was always there. And I witnessed Dr. Hamam and I can tell you, he loved his kids as much as I love my two-year-old daughter. Well, we appreciate you having this conversation with us and remembering your friend and and the, the legacy that he leaves behind. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. Dr. Ben Thompson is a friend of the late Dr. Hamam Allo. He's in Toronto. It's very likely that Peter Nygaard will spend the rest of his life in prison. Yesterday in a Toronto courtroom, the 82-year-old former fashion mogul was found guilty of four counts of sexual assault. He was acquitted of a fifth count, as well as a charge of forcible confinement. During the trial, five women testified that, over a span of decades, each was invited to Mr. Nygaard's Toronto headquarters under pretexts ranging from tours to job interviews. Each time, they say they ended up in a bedroom suite where Peter Nygaard sexually assaulted them. Mr. Nygaard still faces criminal charges in Manitoba, Quebec, and the U.S., as well as a class action lawsuit brought by 57 women. His son Kai has been trying to blow the whistle since 2019, when he says he witnessed his father inappropriately touch a young girl. After the verdict, he had a message for his father's victims. The scale of this crime and his actions... When you look at the civil suit, you look at accusers who weren't in the civil suit, former employees who wanted to come forward and don't want anything to do with money, 
just want to have justice. He has more formal accusations than Epstein, Weinstein, and Cosby combined. So understand that you're not alone. This is a victory for all of those in Winnipeg who came forward, who were denied justice, and all of those who care about justice and are open to the idea of stopping predators from abusing and targeting children, using drugs to abuse women, and using tactics like jurisdiction loopholes or threats of lawsuit to silence their victims. That was Peter Nygaard's son, who goes by Kai Bickle, speaking outside the Toronto court yesterday. Shannon Maroney is a trauma therapist who works with dozens of Peter Nygaard's alleged victims. We reached her in Toronto. Shannon, there's a video of you outside the courthouse after the verdict yelling guilty into your phone. Who were who you talking to? I was talking to one of the Toronto survivors, one of the who has now the formal title victim, because right. you don't get to be a victim formally and officially until uh, there's a conviction of guilt. A lot of work led to that moment. What was it like? Uh, yes, a lot of work to achieve a conviction for historical sex crime is uh, is almost unprecedented. And this case, uh, as I think, you know, Kai sort of outlines and, and many of us have spoken about, uh, this case is unprecedented in so many other ways. It, uh, I mean, it's hard not to listen to that quote, that that clip of Kai talking with just the sheer number of women who have accused yeah. Mr. Nygaard of assault, women who didn't get justice. I wonder, uh, you know, a, a day later, what does this guilty verdict mean to all survivors? It, it really is uh, very difficult to even get your head around the, the vast reach of his um, reign of terror. I, I don't mean to sound like, a, you know, some sort of literature no, I know what you mean. or something, but, but um, it's, uh, it's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. And that he was able to get away with it for so long. And it's really important that we know and we understand the influence of his power, his wealth. And that is uh, so much of what, it, what made him able to get away with it. It, it must be so much for these women to process. I mean, the the assault and then the process leading up to this and the court case and now a verdict. What emotions are these women going through? Yes, they are it, it, all the feels. That's what I always say to them. You can have all the feels all the time. First and foremost is a sense of disbelief that it's really happened. Hmm. I've had survivors calling and get in touch with me all day to say, this is real, right? This, this really happened. I didn't dream this. Wow. This really happened. And that's whether or not they got a conviction yesterday or whether they are awaiting their own day in court, whether they know that their day in court will never come. They are all in a state of disbelief that he was convicted, not that he, obviously not that he's guilty. And, and then there's this uh, hope and joy of having been believed. Hmm. Um, there is the grief because this happened to them. It happened to them. And then looming behind or above or around all of this is he was acquitted of that fifth count of sexual assault. How, how, do, you, how do you help people process that? Yes, my advice, but also the attitude that many survivors have is that a charge for one of us is a charge for all of us and a conviction for one of us is a conviction for all of us because they know and I know how difficult, if not impossible, it is to 
get charges and then to be able to prove to the point of a conviction to beyond a reasonable doubt that these offenses occurred because the very nature of sexual assault is that most of the time there are only two people in the room. And when you then add in the aspects of historical sexual assault, for some it was 30 or 40 years ago, then that just makes it all the more complicated. This jury decided in, in two of the charges that there wasn't the evidence to support it. I think it's important to remember too that they, the jury uh, does not have uh, the information even that the public has right. um, of the, the breadth and depth of this. And the, for the one survivor in Toronto who did not, uh, her charge was not convicted, in her own testimony during the trial, and I remember I was not in the courtroom, I was a subpoenaed witness myself, I wasn't able to be in court during the trial. Um, but I read in the paper and, and, you know, she had said, you know, what happened in Toronto, well, it wasn't nearly as bad uh, as what happened to me in the Bahamas. Hmm. And so, but she can't have a charge for something that happened in a different jurisdiction. Right. You know, th this process is, is certainly not over. Uh, there are other charges that he's yet to be tried for. Uh, Nygaard has maintained his innocence in all of this, so we'll see how that unfolds. What, mm -hmm. what, how do you help these women from feeling like they have to reprocess everything at every stage as, as we move through the judicial system? Yeah, it's lots of counseling. Um, and it's for me, it's a great um, a privilege to be able to do that. And there's also enormous barriers that are faced. We do not have public funding for um, mental health counseling in any province i don't think certainly not in the provinces where my where my uh, survivors and clients are that's another issue to face is that uh, we need to invest in the healing of girls and women you know on the day of sentencing what's going to happen is one person is going to go go to jail and everyone else is going to go home and that's not good enough that's something that i relate to very much is being in a court and in the sentencing of my offender um and, and who had offended against others that at the end of the day, one person went to prison for the rest of his life and everyone went home. And so when we say we, we love this idea that justice is served, but I've never seen it served. I've seen mm. it be worked incredibly hard for. Um, and so we need a lot of uh, support to be made available to these women um, because they're amazing. Well, and I, even if they, like that, you shouldn't have to have, I don't need, I don't even need to say that, right? But not because they're amazing, but because it's their right, right. and their rights were violated. Um, I just happen to know and love them. So right. <laughs> let's just throw that in. They can also be amazing too. Uh, listen, yes, I, I can't imagine how difficult this has been for them, but for you as well. And I, I do hope you're, you're taking care of yourself in this process too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Shannon Maroney is a trauma therapist. She's in Toronto. He started out making live recordings of punk rock bands to play on his college radio show in London, Ontario, and wound up a Canadian music legend. Producer, engineer, and archivist Peter J. Moore died on Saturday at the age of 67. When a lost Joni Mitchell recording turned up, or when Rush wanted to bring a decades-old live album back to life, Mr. Moore got the call. 
And for good reason. He was a master whose restoration of Bob Dylan and the band's basement tapes won him a Grammy. He worked with countless bands, big and small, over the years, but it was the Trinity Session by the band Cowboy Junkies that put him on the map. It was recorded using a single microphone in a Toronto church, and the 1988 album went on to sell well over a million copies. Michael Timmons is the songwriter and guitarist for Cowboy Junkies. We reached him in Toronto. Michael, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. Take us back. What, what made you first want to record with Peter J. Moore back when you were both relatively unknown? Yeah, we were, we were yeah, very unknown. We had, hadn't had a record yet. And uh, <laughs> Peter hadn't ever, I don't think, recorded an album. So we were, we were, both, we were both pretty uh, young and naive. Uh, we met Peter at a, um, at a party, uh, at, which was actually given by Greg, at Greg Keeler's loft at the time. And um, we got to talk to Peter and got to know him. And, and we discovered that he sort of had the same feeling that we had, that the music coming out of studios at that time was pretty boring and robbing the bands of their personality. And, and Peter was wanting to sort of pioneer a, a new way of recording, sort of getting almost a, a new old way of getting back to the, the, uh, your classic uh, jazz recordings and of just you know, trying to capture performances. And um, that's exactly what we had been talking about doing in our studio, in our, in our rehearsal garage. It was like we just wanted to capture with a sound that we heard when we were in our garage. And, and we knew that uh, if we went to a studio, first of all, we wouldn't have the money to do so and we wouldn't have the knowledge. So we said, decided to try to do some experimentation together. And that ended up being our first album, which was White South Breath Now. And then that grew into doing the next record, which was the Trinity Session. So we just fortunately came together. And I mean, the idea behind the Trinity Session, it sounds so simple, right? You know, but yeah. to get something that sounds that good with a yeah. single microphone, I can't even, it must have been just painstaking work. Did, did yeah. you believe he could pull it off? Yeah, you know, we had this uh, uh, amazing belief in Peter. He, he just he just exude confidence, right? And he always did through his entire life. That's that's one thing he never lacked: was conf <laughs> confidence, confidence in his ability, and uh, rightfully so. Like you know, uh, when it came down to sound and capturing sound and the physics of sound, like Peter was a genius in that sense. Like he he just knew everything about it. And you know, as we got to know him, we, we did our first record with him, and we loved what he did in our tiny little muffled garage and then he came to us you know six months later and when we were ready to record again and said you know i've been i found this space at trinity church and i love the you know of course he didn't just say i love the reverb of it he talked about you know the dimensions of it and it's the dimensions of this right. church in this place and all the things up and we just sort of nodded blankly at him and said okay just tell us when to show up and we did and um took place in a, over the course of a day a very long 12-hour day but first six seven hours of that day was peter just moving us around the microphone in and out and then us playing and him going and listening back on his headphones and moving somebody else two feet here and moving another person you know one foot in towards it wow. until he yeah it was really it was you know tr truly like he was mixing because it was just you know it was a single microphone a stereo microphone but there was no post-production on it so and you know and just hearing him just using his ears just using his ears and his knowledge of audio and his knowledge of sound waves and and um and that's what he did. And then finally he said, you know, okay, we got it, play. <laughs> and we played, for, we, we played for the next six hours, just went through the songs like two or three times each and walked out of the church with a record and a career. <laughs> is, is it true? The, the, the legend is that it only costs like 250 bucks to make. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's probably an exaggeration. It's probably too much money. Uh, we, uh, everybody was working on spec, including Peter. And um, we had to pay to rent the church, which was very minimal. 
And then we had to pay, I think we bribed the security guard 25 bucks to let us stick around for an extra two hours because uh, he wanted to close up and we weren't ready to close. And then we bought pizza for everybody. And that was, that was the budget. That was, that was, that was literally <laughs> everything. So yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cheap. It was pretty cheap. Allow me to nerd out for a second here. Cause I, yeah. I, I played that cassette clear through, broke the tape and broke mm-hmm. my dad's cassette player in the car, the whole bit. But when I listen, and even now, when I listen to those recordings, I, I'm struck by restraint, uh, an, an almost mm-hmm. kind of hushed feeling. And, and I feel like I've imposed that on Peter Moore. Uh, was he like that as as a person, or am I just completely off base on that? <laughs> hushed? No. <laughs> <laughs> he was about the opposite. Um, you know, Peter Peter just dealt with whatever was in front of him. He was He was a real pro at that. Like, whatever you gave him, his 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 objective was to make it work, right? So that that was the amazing thing about Peter. He he never gave up, right? And uh, so with 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 us, um, we we were hushed, like that. We were a very very quiet band. And Peter's idea was that you know I could take this this music coming out of this, these five, six, seven, eight people and capture something here really special. So it was just you know as I say, Peter you know heard something and then he. His brain went into okay. Now, how do I how do I make this work? And that, that's that's what he did. So yeah, so and the hush was really us playing, but he captured it, you know, which was really not easy at all. He went on to do some amazing things with archival recordings. Of course, mm-hmm. the the Grammy winning release, the, the the basement tapes by Bob Dylan mm-hmm. and the band. What did he tell you about that? Well, it was amazing, you know, because I'd be in and out of the studio all the time. And one day I walked into a studio to work on something I was working on. He said, okay, I'm going to play something, but you can't, you can't tell anybody this. Because I don't think he'd, he'd be given the gig yet. And he, he goes in, he gets up this little quarter-inch tape, like a literal box. And he opens it up and puts it on his quarter-inch tape machine. And there's Bob Dylan and, wow. <laughs> and Robbie and Garth and Levon. <laughs> and, and, and it was... You know, mind blowing. Say, like, what? The, why is this? And he says, "These are the basement tapes, like, like literally the basement wow. tapes." Quite, it's quite amazing. It was, and you know, he he just loved it. He just loved that type of project. That's really cool. Uh, before we say goodbye, is is there a song you worked on with Peter Moore that that we could play for you now? Uh, well, I, I was thinking that you know, the 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 Trinity session obviously is 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 our is our I think both of our masterworks and. Uh, you know, the legend is is that it was recorded in one day, and that's kind of false in that there's the one song, Mining for Gold, which opens the record out, and we had decided that we'll do it the very last thing because it's easy. It's just Margo singing by herself. It's a cappella, and, you know, we'll just leave it. But by the end of the day, after 12 hours, we packed up and walked out of the church, and as soon as the doors closed behind <laughs> us, we realized that we had forgotten to record it. So Peter, again, you know, you put a problem in front of him, he's going to solve it. He said, okay, I'm in here next week with the – some some of the Toronto Symphony doing some recording. So Margot, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you on their union break, and you've got to get down here right away. So sure enough, you know the next Monday or whatever, Margot gets a call, rushes down to the church. She walks in, and all these classical musicians are sitting around eating their sandwiches, and Peter says, "Okay, there, there's the mic, sing. <laughs> you got one shot." And so she does it, and that that's that's the version. Wow. Well, we'll play that now. But thank you for that. Just great thank to get you. all these stories. Thanks a lot. We reached Cowboy Junkies guitarist Michael Timmons in Toronto. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. 
For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There are some new faces in the British cabinet today in the wake of a major shuffle by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And there's one face that's all the more surprising for not being new at all. That's the security detail just opening the door for... David David Cameron! Cameron. What? I was not expecting that! Okay. That's right. David Cameron is back, this time as Foreign Secretary. His return has divided supporters of the UK's Conservative Party, some of whom see him as an unwelcome blast from the not-too-distant past, but at least one Channel 5 caller feels differently. He will be a, a breath of fresh air. He's literally old news. <laughs> but, but, Robert, he's, he's already been prime... He was, he was Labour... Labour. He was Conservative leader for, I think, 12 or 11 years, no, and he's been he, Prime Minister he, for six. He, he, he's a... David Cameron is not the only one making headlines either. Suella Braverman is back in the news too, this time for losing her job as Home Secretary to Mr. Cameron's predecessor, James Cleverly. It's enough to make your head spin. And speaking of spin, the Tories are clearly hoping it will be enough to boost their dismal poll numbers. Rob Watson is a political correspondent with the BBC World Service. We reached him in London. Rob, we just heard one caller describe David Cameron as a breath of fresh air. How would you describe him? Well, I would certainly say that it's one of the most unexpected comebacks in British politics. I guess, depending on your point of view, this is either an act of of desperation or a bold gamble. And and I say that because the Conservatives are just so far behind in the opinion polls here. It's like a sort of constant 20% deficit to the main opposition Labour Party that... uh, you know, it seems as though Rishi Sunak has taken the view, well, hey, I've tried presenting myself as the guy representing change, even though the Conservatives have been in power for 13 years. So, hey, maybe I could bring back a former Prime Minister and see if that has any impact on the polling. I mean, I, I should say that, you know, I, I think there is a view that, that it's sort of rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic, politically speaking, <laughs> just because they're so far, uh, so far behind. And yet, the, even as, you know, bold gamble, David Cameron is responsible for the unfolding, the way the, the Brexit vote was called, the way it unrolled, the way it got implemented, the whole bit. He really is the sort of, you know, original carrier of all of that. What message is embedded in that to potential voters about this is the guy that's going to help us turn it around? I think that is the, one of the major downsides of bringing David Cameron back is that an awful lot of people, whether they voted remain or leave in that infamous 2016 referendum, are going to be thinking, hang on a minute, wasn't he the guy that called this referendum, campaigned to remain, lost it, left office in disgrace? Why on earth is he coming back? I mean, the other sort of downsides are that, if you like, it sort of creates some sort of muddle about the identity of the Conservative Party. I mean, the Hmm. voters might be forgiven for thinking, well, hang on a minute, is the Conservative Party a a right-wing 
staunchly pro-Brexit party or with Cameron coming back? Is it something different? And a lot of our listeners might not remember the, the various scandals that plagued Mr. Cameron, the, the, the one involving the supply chain financing firm Greensill Capital, probably chief among them. Can you just remind everybody what he's reported to have done? Well, you know, essentially, after after he um, left office, like a lot of British politicians or politicians everywhere, he wanted to try and make some money, Peter, right, and make some big money. So he went to go and uh, work for this financial services company and essentially an inquiry into, into the collapse of that company had found that David Cameron had shown, I, I think the words, the phrase was something like poor judgment right. in the way that he had lobbied former colleagues still inside government to try and help out this company. So, yeah. No, he not only did he leave uh, office with history marking him right. down as surely one of the most unfortunate prime ministers since the Second World War, but then, of course, you know, his post-prime ministerial career was blotted by this, this sort of lobbying scandal. He gets thrown right into the thick of it. As foreign secretary, he'll, he'll be at the fore of navigating the UK's relationship with Israel. Uh, when he was prime minister, he, he's on record as having described Gaza as a prison camp and said that it could not be allowed to remain one. Do you think we're likely to hear similar rhetoric now that he's foreign secretary to Rishi Sunak? Uh, that's an easy question to answer, Peter. Absolutely not. I mean, I don't think there's any sign of, of the British government's overall position uh, changing, and that is of being incredibly supportive of the Israeli government. I, I think the only thing that would really change that is if the Americans changed their position. So, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons has also voiced some concern about how David Cameron will be held accountable, seeing as he's been given a seat in the House of Lords. Uh, what, what's your sense of how that's likely to play out? Well, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that the opposition parties have kind of <laughs> leapt on this, saying, hang on a minute. So the answer to Britain's problems is having some guy uh, made a lord, uh, and then he won't be able to answer MPs' questions in the House of Commons. And there's been all sorts of suggestions that, you know, this is hardly particularly democratic. You know, it's, it's all part of what makes this a, a risky move by Rishi Sunak. You know, the, one of the keys to political and crisis comms is is to change the channel when things are going badly. And and to a degree, they've done that. I mean, the story probably would have been how Swella Braverman was sacked as Home Secretary, but instead we're here talking about David Cameron. What do you think was the straw that broke the camel's back for her? That's a great question. And and by the way, I think what you're uh, what you've been talking about there, Peter, is the classic uh, dead cat uh, strategy, which I'm, I'm sure your listeners will know. It's the idea that you, uh, you know, when things are going badly, you kind of change the conversation by putting a dead cat on the table or in this case, uh, a former prime minister. Uh, what did for Suella Braverman? Well, it's really, really fascinating because she has been one of the most controversial home secretaries or interior ministers in recent history. She's sort of right wing populist, takes a tough line on immigration. She's described some of the uh, the pro-Palestinian marches in, in London as, as hate marches. And I don't think that Rishi Sunak has so much 
you know, fallen out with her ideologically. But I think she, she's become, as far as he's concerned, that most unfortunate of things, which is an unpopular populist. But, you know, it, it is risky because there is a sort of an, a, a large, a really significant minority of the population who, who do think that there's too much wokery and that politicians are too frightened to call a spade a spade and that they actually rather like Sweller Braverman's right. incredibly tough line on immigration and think, you know what, she's one of those kind of politicians who just says what an awful lot of ordinary people are thinking, but which most politicians are too frightened to say. So, so it is risky. But yeah, in the end, I think Mr. Sunak decided she may be outspoken and she may appeal to a big chunk of the population. But my goodness, I'm getting a lot of heat over her. Well, it's been a fascinating day. And I, for one, am very glad we were able to get your insight on all of this. So thanks for this. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for asking me. Rob Watson is a political correspondent with the BBC World Service. He's in London. When As It Happens last spoke with Lila de Lima in 2016, she was under threat, but she didn't know how serious that threat would be. The former Filipino senator had angered then-President Rodrigo Duterte by criticizing his deadly war on drugs, a war which, in the end, claimed well over 6,000 lives. Not long thereafter, Senator de Lima was behind bars on what she and her supporters condemned as trumped-up charges designed to silence her. Now, after almost seven years in jail, Ms. de Lima has been granted bail. That's a result of several witnesses retracting their testimony against her after Mr. Duterte's term ended last year. Her legal troubles aren't over, but she is already looking ahead and planning to clear her name completely. From our archives, here's Lila de Lima speaking with guest host Laura Lynch about a Senate inquiry she launched just seven weeks into Mr. Duterte's reign when it became clear he would keep his campaign promise that his presidency would be bloody. Senator de Lima, what are you learning about how 1,900 suspected drug criminals have been killed in the past several weeks? Well, these are extrajudicial killings. I should say that many of these or most of these are cases of extrajudicial killings because they, they are not being given a due process. They are being killed instantly. This is even worse than death penalty. But then how much of the blame for the killings do you think should be put on the shoulders of President Duterte? Is he inciting violence? But of course he's denying that. But we have heard his statements even before, even during the campaign period. But uh, they would always try to, to, to uh, put up certain excuses, like is this a rhetoric? Is just trying to instill fear among the bad guys. Of course, it's denying that this is state-sponsored. They're denying that it's state policy. But if it's not state-sponsored, at the very least, it's state-inspired. Now, the president has said repeatedly that lawmakers who are attempting to block his efforts on curbing illegal drugs might risk uh, being killed themselves. Uh, do, do, you, do you see that as a threat, a threat directed at you even? <laughs> it's unbelievable that we hear statements like that. But what kind of statements are that? Are those, you know, so, so it's, 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 we have not really seen anything like this. But are you worried for your own safety? Well, some people are telling me 
I should be worried. But, you know, it is to his interest, or it is to the interest of this government that they keep me safe. Because if something happens to me, then, uh, you know, people would blame them. He, he's also accusing you of impropriety, and, and, and you're a longtime <laughs> critic of the president. <laughs> I hear you laughing. You know, so that is so foul. Now, I, I would not want to be dwelling into my personal life. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue being thrown at me to uh, distract, to divert the real issue at hand. And maybe in, in, in an attempt to try to break my spirit, but it will not happen. But you've been a, a longtime critic of the president. Does that mean that your inquiry is colored by your bias in any way? Is it tainted? Not at all. Not at all. Well, I'm not really a critic in this because, you know, I have to say something. I have to do something with respect to issues that are close to my heart. And one of them are human rights issues because I used to be the chairperson of the Commission on Human Rights. And I even investigated the phenomenon of the Davao Dead Squad. And I think that's the main reason why he's so pissed off with me. The UN has called Duterte's war on drugs criminal. Human Rights Watch has said his actions are unacceptable, and yet he keeps making these provocative statements. Um, What do you want from the international community? Well, I would ask the international committee to closely observe what's happening here. We want people uh, to really know what's happening here in our country. And yet, Senator, there still is a drug and crime problem in the Philippines. How can the government address it without condoning violence? We need to uh, build more rehabilitation centers. We need to build more detention facilities. Uh, I, I think the president just needs to make a categorical statement that he really does not condone this. He needs to give direct categorical instructions to the police force that uh, 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 these killings must end. From our archives, that was Lila de Lima, a former senator in the Philippines. She spent most of the last seven years in jail on what human rights groups say were politically motivated charges. She spoke to guest host Laura Lynch from Manila just before those charges were laid in 2016. Today, she was granted bail. In Austria, authorities have restricted several pro-Palestinian protests and characterized the use of the common expression from the river to the sea as a call to violence. In France, a blanket ban on pro-Palestinian demonstrations was tossed out by the country's highest administrative court, but case-by-case bans persist. Similar crackdowns have occurred in Hungary. And here in Canada, police in Calgary recently charged a pro-Palestinian demonstrator with causing a public disturbance. But in Germany, the backlash to any activism that's perceived as critical of Israel is uniquely charged. 
Tomer Dreyfus is an Israeli poet and translator who lives there. He's one of the signatories to an open letter condemning Germany's, quote, disturbing crackdown on civic life, unquote. We reached Mr. Dreyfus in Berlin. Tomer, can you give us some examples of the kinds of demonstrations that have been banned or restricted in Germany over the past few weeks? Yeah, so we don't really know what the criteria, what the exact criteria of the police to ban demonstrations, but we know that they're they're banning certain symbols and signs. For example, signs that say um, "From the river to the sea," um, even regardless of how this sentence is continuing, like even not "From the river to the sea," Palestine will be free, which is considered anti-Semitic at the moment. But even recently, we saw signs saying from the river to the sea, we demand equality being right. criminalized and people detained over holding them. Uh, or there was a long period of time after the 7th of October, two or three weeks, where people could not even go down the street wearing a kafia, the Palestinian uh, scarf, because they would get detained for it. Uh, there have been um, demonstrations by Jewish organizations, uh, most prominently the Jewish Voice for Peace, who has been banned. Um, there was even a single uh, protester, Jewish, who was going on the street with a sign saying, I am a Jewish and Israeli and I, I am against this war, and she was arrested for it. And I mean, with that in mind, you know, uh, Germany obviously has a, we'll call it a unique approach to dealing with uh, perceived criticisms of Israel because of its Nazi Mm -hmm. past. For those that are just kind of tuning in at home saying, what on earth is going on here? Can you just try to help our listeners understand how that actually plays out? Like from your perspective as a a Jewish person living in Berlin? Yeah. So Germany has decided to locate its historical guilt and historical responsibility towards the Jews in the state of Israel. Um, so it, it creates this absurd situation that even even Jews are not really safe in Germany um, if they are criticizing Israel. And it's basically a, a crackdown on the diversity of the Jewish political world. I, I mean, the, the idea here is ostensibly to make Jewish people feel safer how do these kinds of interventions make you feel? Well, it makes me, first of all, it makes me feel unsafe um, for two main reasons. First of all, the definition of anti-Semitism is being stretched here beyond its limit, and it's kind of losing its meaning a little bit. Hmm. Um, and we see that in, in practice. We see how ministers who have expressed themselves in an anti-Semitic way get to keep their jobs um, while people get arrested for holding a sign saying from the river to the sea. The the far right is still making up 84% of the anti-Semitic attacks in this country, according to police statistics. And yet all of the energy on fighting anti-Semitism is concentrated on immigrant communities. We had um, one of the major magazines in Germany a few days ago has published a, a, a headline saying... Um, the Jews or the aggressive Arabs, which of them should we keep? And that puts me, and it makes me feel even more unsafe because Jews and Arabs in this country are, we're we're supposed to be against each other. The German um, society is putting us against each other forcibly, so to say. And secondly, such a headline means that both of us, both of these groups don't belong here. Right. Uh, right, they have to choose which one should they keep. Um, so that that's the whole thing in a nutshell. 
You know, the, the, the official line from the police is, is that these pro-Palestinian demonstrations could lead, and I'm quoting here, to incitement to hatred, anti-Semitic statements, glorification of violence, incitement to violence, and thus intimidation and violence, unquote. Yeah. What do you make of that argument? Well, so I'll tell you the truth. At the beginning, I thought that this is um, police laziness. Right, because the role of the police in a democratic country is to allow demonstrations to exist. So, if someone is is being anti-Semitic in a demonstration, I would think they should remove this person from the demonstration so that the demonstration can move on. So, I thought, okay, well, they're being lazy; they're just banning the whole demonstration altogether ex- instead of actually doing their job. But then I see that they are doing their job when it comes to far-right demonstrations. Hmm. So um, I think it's very selective. Right. And, and I mean, it's worth noting, we have seen a, a, an increase in anti-Semitic acts, right? With a couple of Molotov cocktails thrown in the synagogues. When you stretch the definition of anti-Semitism so far, then when you include everything in this definition, then you actually m- miss the, the actual events that are happening, right? Because they just get swallow, swallowed in the, the sea of anti-Semitic um, uh, attacks. You you moved, if I've got this right, to Germany 13 years ago, so when Benjamin Netanyahu mm-hmm. was first elected in Israel. Uh, I've spoken yeah. with a lot of Israeli expats who are thinking of moving back to Israel now. Do you find yourself thinking about moving home again? Home to Israel? No, yeah. I don't think so. Um, the, the safety of Israel was something that has allowed us to live abroad as well. Right? I could live in Berlin because I knew that if Germany becomes Nazi again tomorrow, um, I could pack my stuff and go to Israel. And what we've realized on the 7th of October is that Israel is not a safe place for us as well. Hmm. So we're basically back to the start where we are dispersed in the world and we don't have a, a safe place to live in. Um, yeah, I was thinking of moving and I had this this um, joking conversation with my partner on where should we go and um, you know, I suggested Italy and she mentioned correctly that Italy is also very far right at the moment. And then I said half jokingly that, yeah, well, at least Italy is not using me and Jews as an excuse for their, um, for their far right government and views because, because there is no place at the moment where it is safe to be, um, Jewish. I think, um, we're going to soon come to the realization that we have to kind of create our own spaces of, um, our own safe spaces to to be in. And it's not necessarily a nation state. It's not necessarily in Israel. It could also be in Berlin or in Toronto. But, you know, we, we're going to have to take care of it. We're going to have to take care of our own safety. Listen, these are tough conversations in, in difficult times, and we're really glad you made the time to yeah. speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Tomer Dreyfus is an Israeli writer, poet, and translator living in Berlin. That's where we reached him. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.